Distinguished guests and dear friends, welcome to the National Library. I'm Anne-Marie Schwertlich, the Director General of the National Library. And as we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for this land that we are now privileged to call home. We are here to launch Barbara's new book, All My Januaries, Pleasures of Life and Other Essays, a collection that reflects on food, on travel, on friendships, on family, and the many unexpected pleasures of life. And we're also here to celebrate friendship, a very particular friendship between two distinguished Australians, Barbara Blackman, AO, and Kerry Stokes, AC. This wonderful pair needs little introduction. Their collective impact on Australian cultural and social life is immeasurable. And they are both, we're lucky to say, dear friends of the National Library of Australia. Barbara has been a prolific writer throughout her life. We at the library are honoured to hold in our collections both Barbara's personal papers between 1950 and 1970 and her correspondence with Judith Wright between 1950 and 1998. Barbara has also been kind enough to devote hours of her time to the library's continually expanding oral history collection. She appears in over 160 recordings from 1974 to as recently as 2009, both as interviewer and interviewee. The National Library is also one of a number of cultural organisations to have benefited from the generosity of Kerry Stokes over the years. Most recently, the Kerry Stokes Collection loaned us the 16th century Flemish illuminated manuscript known as the Rothschild Prayer Book, which we were privileged and thrilled to display last year on its very first public outing in Australia. Kerry and Barbara met when Kerry was beginning to build his private collections and he took an interest in Charles Blackman's work. And I suspect that more of that meeting will be revealed during the course of this afternoon. Kerry, it is a very great pleasure to welcome you back to the National Library to launch Barbara's book, All My Januaries. Please welcome Mr Kerry Stokes. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Appreciate your kind words too. It is a special morning this morning to find myself here with my good friend Barbara. Equally, to actually see Barnaby for the first time in so many years. Feels like yesterday. It doesn't feel like the years have passed. We started the conversation. We started to immediately talk about some of the things. It felt just like yesterday. And I guess that's one of the great things that happens when you become truly good friends with somebody. Barbara is a force of nature. And that comes through in everything. It's a common theme to all of us and all of those who love her. Mm, becomes yes with Barbara. <laughs> it's impossible to say no to Barbara and very easy to understand why her life is filled with yeses. As she says in a book, her life has always been about yeses. She says yes, not no. Most of us, myself included, my life is filled with no's. My first reaction to is no, because I don't want to think about it, make a commitment, I want to understand it first. Barbara, I'll understand it later, let's just do it. When she asked me if I'd launched the book, she said, would you launch my book? And we were sitting at the opening of the jo uh, Tom Roberts exhibit at the Art Gallery in Canberra last October. And I said, I'd love to. She said, well, give me a date. I said, I don't, I don't have a date. She said, well, if you're going to come and launch my book for me, give me a date. And she's holding my hand, got her head on my shoulder, and I said, well, I know I'll be there for Anzac Day. Good, the Sunday before. 
And that was, we agreed that was the last I heard from her until this morning. <laughs> I wasn't invited. <laughs> I just knew that was the date. And the good people at the library at Anne Marie, they obviously have done all the hard work, but um, things just happen around Barbara. It doesn't have to be documented. <laughs> we were at the Tom Roberts opening, which was rather grand, and they were even passing around shot glasses, <laughs> giving you a shot. And my friend Kerry said, don't give her one, it'd kill her. I'll, I'll have hers too. <laughs> Thank you for preserving me. Uh, obviously, it was to good effect, Barbara. <laughs> um, as I said, good things happen around Barbara. She doesn't just write words, though. What she puts down is images that jump off the pages. She but she hasn't always used nice words. Not to me, anyway. <laughs> and she hasn't always said yes. My first meeting with Barbara in the early 70s, when I made the contact wanting to buy some paintings. Who didn't love Charles Blackman's early work? As a person becoming involved in the arts, I was immediately driven and, and, and to, to Charles's work, loved everything he'd done. But when I went to see Barbara, she was kind enough. We had a nice conversation. She took me to the studio. We looked through where he painted the Kitten in the Garden series. Then she showed me all the paintings that were there. It was like being in an Aladdin's cave of art and all these wonders were there. And then she said, no, you can't buy any. <laughs> <laughs> They're not for sale. <laughs> It was, it was, she was like repelling the barbarians at the gate. And, and I, obviously at the time, really didn't fully appreciate that to her, each of these works were an emotional treasure. They weren't paintings. They, were, they weren't images on a canvas. To her, the stories were an emotional journey and, and an emotional treasure. I got to know her better. I ended up having some dinner at her house in Paddington. Barnaby is a little bit younger than he is now. We, I don't know where or when, but sometime subsequent to that, not having asked to buy them again, she actually said to me, what would you like to buy? And we were fortunate enough to put together what is a, I believe, a really significant collection. I'm really proud that every single one of them is still in our collection. And in fact, uh, I had an associate who was with me at the time who actually sold his paintings when uh, at a point in time, but we managed to make sure they stayed together. So everything that we've done with Barbara and everything we've had uh, still remains today and will form part of, I hope, an exhibition in a gallery in the future. But she was, she was, she was repelling the borders of the gate because people would come and want to oh, buy the I didn't hear you. Oh, you were repelling the borders at the gate, the, the rebels who were oh. trying to buy the art. Oh, yes. yes because <laughs> there wasn't an age. You had, had to deal with Barbara. No, we're not for sale. So she does say no with conviction. Now, I'll tell that story a bit more fulsomely. <laughs> <laughs> this conversation between Mrs Stokes and myself took place in a red telephone box, <laughs> out in a paddock, where in um, um, up in the Hawkesbury, where um, have a chat and numerous other people were sitting on the veranda of the uh, general store, which controlled the telephones. They'd never seen such a long telephone. They were taking bets as to how much longer this telephone call would go on. <laughs> and I said uh, to Monsieur Stokes, well, you can buy uh, some Blackman paintings, but first of all, I am involved in a senior secondary innovative school. I made a manuscript collection of two 
hundred pages of two hundred significant Australian poets, painters, photographers, and it is up for sale for twenty thousand dollars. You buy that, then we'll talk about painting. <laughs> and he did, and he still has it. <laughs> and I think we first came to this place, Kerry, when that exhibition was framed uh, in panels yes. uh, with a, a strange cooperation between the Arts Council, Council. and the uh, what the Arts Council and the uh, Canberra Arts or whatever it was. And this place here donated photographs of many of the people who were in that 200 and they were mounted on panels and they travelled. I know they travelled around every tin pot town in, in South Australia and in Queensland and that collection still exists. Ms. Barth? Um, there goes the second part of my speech. <laughs> <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> yes, Barbara, that is very correct, but th there's a little bit more to it than that. Um, uh, <laughs> as, as Barbara mentioned, the school was an interesting product of her, um, her energy at the time. 1974. It was when we launched here, Barbara. Uh, yes. It was actually 71, I think, when we got together first, or 72. Oh, we all put our ages yeah, back a bit. Back. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't realise when Barbara said to me at the time, uh, she said, well, the school's got to come over and see you. And I said, that'd be good, any time. She said, well, I'll be there next year. Good. I was away in March on my boat diving in the Abrolhos Islands, which I used to do, and on the Batavia, and uh, I came back in April, about April the 14th. I'm coming up the Swan River in my little boat at the time. I look up at my home, and there's this crowd of people on the balcony waving at me. So I berth the boat, go home, and there I find, in fact, the Blackmans had arrived, all 40 of them. <laughs> An interesting group of kids, some with talent, none of them, though, capable of deciding the difference between kangaroo dog meat and fine steak. Barbara knows when I arrived home one night to the stinky odour of kangaroo meat being grilled. As Barbara knows, the great advantage I had that night wasn't that they ate the kangaroo meat in their casserole, but my dog thought all these Christmases would come at once because <laughs> he got the full of steak. <laughs> Kaiser was an intelligent dog. I had to brag about how smart he was and how trained he was and how clever he was. When I got home, I noticed every time Barbara came up or came down, he, he sat to attention, he moved, he was attentive. And I said to Barbara, gee, that dog of mine is really smart. Every time he sees you, he stands up, he knows you're special. She said, of course he does. I've kicked him, tripped on him, run over him and did, done everything. He now gets out of my way the minute he hears my first step. <laughs> and he avoids me at all costs. <laughs> yes. Sometime before that, the school was in need of a serious cash injection. Yes. And in those days, to raise funds, the normal procedure was raffles, um, pass the hat around, um, normal ways of raising funds. But Barbara needed far more than that at that time. And she came up with the idea of going to all the people she knew and asking them for a handwritten contribution she could auction. Uh, we spoke, in fact, as she was in the process, and my first thoughts were, I wonder how many people would actually respond to being asked, I want you to do something in handwriting or by your hand for me personally. And of course, hundreds did. Not hundreds, and I included Arthur Boyd, who did a wonderful drawing with a poem written for Barbara. Bob Hawke gave his handwritten thesis for his doctorate at Oxford. That's two ends of the spectrum. It included poems, new and unpublished works, specially written items, music and drawings. And when she'd finished, there were hundreds of items to the most celebrated people of our time. 
even Patrick White is included. To oh, Barbara's he wrote delight. me a letter saying he thought it was a silly idea and he didn't have good handwriting anyway, so I put that one in. Absolutely. <laughs> he wasn't going to be involved in any event, but she put it in. All these people willingly did something out of their own hand because Barbara asked them. Politely. Politely. <laughs> I wonder not, how many people... the case may be. <laughs> I wonder how many people could do that today. I wouldn't like to try. I wouldn't like to try and ask 200 of the busiest uh, and most important people in this country to do me a personal favour. Everybody responded to Barbara. You know, someone asked recently, they're talking about bullying at school, and they said, when I was at school, was there bullying? I said, oh, yes. And they said, well, how did you cope with it? Oh, I said, it was wonderful. I was the bully. <laughs> I started a debating club, a drama club, and a dancing before school club. <laughs> the most wonderful thing is, Barbara, you haven't stopped dancing. At oh, least with no, words. No, never, never. At least with words. Yes. And with that collection, incidentally, um, it was here at this library that it was opened. And the library at the time had the highest visitation it had ever had to view that celebration of writing. And it was because of the visitation numbers, and my, if my memory is correct, in the period it was here, it was like 300,000 people viewed it. And that was the catalyst for the Australia Council to put it on a train and send it all around the country for two years. Yes. One of the good things is it is still alive today, as Barbara says. It's in our air-conditioned storage in Perth. And what's it's going to happen to it? It's, be, it's been archived, it's ready to come out when we want to bring out the special exhibit. And hopefully, Barbara, in the not too far distant future, we may end up with a gallery, and in which case it would have a special pride of place. Oh, and that would be wonderful. Yeah, and I think so too, because it was a point in time. What Barbara had actually collected was a, a point in cultural time across artists, business people, politicians, a whole spectrum of the Australian public all made something at one point in time. I thought it was important. I think it's still very important. But the real thing is it was a window into what Barbara approaches everything with. Like Quentin Bryce describes in her emotional forward, I too have been enriched and moved by Barbara. She is a force of nature. And she's certainly that. She's a ball of energy. And when you hold Barbara's hand... You can feel that energy. Barbara talks. <laughs> Maybe it's just that she squeezes so hard. <laughs> but there's an aura about Barbara. There's an aura that's visible, um, and, and you can sense it and feel it. In, in her memory, in her memoirs of All My January, her writing is like a verbal kaleidoscope of cascading words at a pace that realises a sense of urgency to impart those reminiscences. For me, words have always been a problem my entire life. I struggle with words. I'm, I'm reasonably good with images, but words have always been a problem for me. Barbara's book fills me with, I can never anticipate what the next word is. And so for me, I'm a slow reader of her work, although the ideas are coming off the page like a machine gun. They just don't stop with their vision and their colour. In one of her essays, the, My Olympic Torch, Barbara admits she ran fast as a schoolgirl. I reckon that would be right. <laughs> but somewhere, fast turned into an almost frenetic acceptance of life, a life filled with images, understanding of colour. She would have been an could have been an advisor to Channel 7. In the early days, we had a slogan. It was called, Colour My World. Barbara's, we shared Barbara's feelings, words and colour. The world is a much better place for Barbara's colour my world. Her energy and enthusiasm matched that of the young kids I saw recently at a track event two weeks ago to select the Australian kids to go to the Olympics. And as Barbara said, she ran fast. And as she describes her carrying of the Olympic torch as the event it was, I know that the young, enthusiastic faces I saw at the Australian titles 
particularly those girls who were so beautiful, they all ran so well, they're going to represent us so well, they will enjoy reading Barbara's thoughts on the torch because she brings a whole different dimension to it, one that brings the entire community alive. I know they'll find it inspiring and fulfilling, as I think we all have. Yes, walking around with that torch, and everyone wanted to touch it. I mean, it had the flame had been passed on, but the torch carrier. Everyone wanted to touch it. It was just wonderful. Mm. Bit of the torch in you, Barbara. The facts are, the torch is symbolic. It's not just symbolic of ancient Greece. The torch is symbolic of human endeavour, and and the Greeks, as we know. The physical endeavour was followed by the artistic and intellectual endeavour. And so carrying the torch, even today, people see this symbolism and they want to be involved. And Barbara's carrying the torch. I always carry a torch for you, Kerry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it had to happen. <laughs> Those damn words again. <laughs> I think all my Januaries are a prelude for all my Februaries and then no, all my Marches. No, my next book is to be called Not a Word About Februaries. <laughs> <laughs> I think all my Januaries should be compulsory reading in schools. I think that there's the humanity that's within her work, that's within the subtext of Barbara's work, is something that stands out we can all live with. It's something of peace and harmony and, and understanding and colour in our world. Oh, and that's lovely, Kerry. That's mm. lovely. <laughs> Barbara, I do love you. You know that. We've had a relationship I for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I commend her book to you, All My Januaries, and I hope that we, I hope I'm round when we finally get to whatever Christmas may be. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, look, I can't let pass. This beautiful, beautiful diamond ring I'm wearing, I got out of a Christmas cracker. <laughs> so Christmas is always with us. Kerry, can I say thank you very much for taking us to the heart of a friendship. That was really very, very beautiful. And really, I think that Barbara's probably ready to keep advising you about Channel 7, should that be of interest to you. <laughs> we're, we're very fortunate this afternoon to have a third person with us uh, who doesn't need any introduction to this audience, and that's Alex Sloan from the ABC because uh, we've had the first part of our conversation between Kerry Stokes and Barbara Blackman, and now we're going to have a conversation between Alex Sloan and Barbara Blackman. Please welcome this part of the proceedings. Thank you, <laughs> thank, thank you very much. Actually, as I was sitting there, I just think, Kerry, just slide on into this chair, really, <laughs> and two old friends have a chat. <laughs> that was beautifully done. For someone said he struggles with words, um, it was beautifully said. I've actually just got some more words for you, Barbara, and for the audience, and this is from um, the University of Queensland Press publisher, Madonna Duffy, and yes. she wasn't able to be in Canberra, but has sent the following words on behalf of UQP, and I'll read them. She says, the University of Queensland Press has a long association with Barbara Blackman, not just because of our shared Brisbane history, but also as the publishers of Barbara's first book, in the late 1960s. Frank Thompson, UQ, UQP's maverick American publisher through the 1960s and 70s, could see the inherent connections between artists and writers. To this end, he published Barbara Blackman's first book, Certain Shares, a collection of autobiographical essays which included 13 illustrations by her first husband, Charles. He also commissioned Charles Blackman to illustrate several UQP books, which are collector's items to this day. To show the enduring relationships he created within the arts, Frank will be speaking at Barbara's Brisbane event next week. 
In a wonderful full circle, nearly 50 years later, UQP is proud to be publishing All My Januaries, a selection of Barbara's finest essays from recent decades. Her love of language, her playfulness with all its strangeness and her exacting ear for rhythm makes this a book to savour. When Barbara writes about the pleasures of life, reading this book is truly one of them. All My Januaries is not just a tour through Barbara's life, it's a celebration of the art of the essay and the many pleasures of life. Nick Galvin, in his recent Canberra Times feature, called her an inventor of words, and this sense of mischief is evident through all these essays. Never one to be hemmed in by convention, Barbara makes her own rules. Not only is All My Januaries a tribute to a life fully lived and enjoyed, but it's a potent reminder of the joys of writing, reading, loving, language and letter writing. Everyone at UQP is so pleased to be bringing Barbara's essay to a new generation of readers as well as delighting readers who have known and loved her work over many decades. Congratulations on this fine achievement, Barbara. Australian arts and literature is richer for your contribution. Thank you. But I, I'm Madonna Duffy. I do want to add one thing. <laughs> the first book of The Little Lives, Certain Chairs a Table or Two, Another Inanimates of Our Acquaintance, called Certain Chairs for Short, came out in mid-68. Now, a certain person was just taking up her lectureship in law. Her name was um, Quentin Price. <laughs> she went to the book launch and she was just taking up her lectureship there and she went to the book launch and being a good lady, she bought the book and she liked the book and then she met and we liked each other. So that's how that acquaintance came and if I, actually, I'll just go there because Quentin Bryce has written a, a quite emotional and beautiful forward to this collection of essays. And I'll just read the final couple of paragraphs. All My Januaries is a text of gorgeous reading about a good life, happiness, beauty, fine values. A joyousness shines through the tough gullies, the dark nights. There is a light that surrounds Barbara Blackman. We see it in her philanthropy support for our artists, their paintings, our galleries, for music, our musicians, their festivals, our composers. These essays share with us her glimpse of the great, the great universe and its intimacy and how to live and how to know things. <laughs> Beautiful. <Lovely. laughs> Deep friendship. Uh, as I said, I feel a little bit of a pretender sitting here with you, Barbara. <laughs> oh, a young pretender. <laughs> Not that young. <laughs> what did you say about 50s? You've got a beautiful, in your book, in one of the essays, you talk about being in your 50s and that is, um, oh, I wish I had the quote, but anyway, it, it made me think about being in my 50s. <laughs> I think your 60s is the greatest decade in your life. I think the 60s are wonderful. You've got your full cargo, you know who you are, you know what you can do and what you can't, and you have a good go at the doing the best of what you do. I think so. I recommend everybody, <laughs> love your 60s. <laughs> 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 uh, Don't worry, there's some for the 70s and 80s. <laughs> yes, oh yes, that's another story, however. Barbara, I suppose a lot in All My January is, is you take us to your childhood and how you came to love words and diary writing and you recall the first diary you were ever presented. Do you want to tell us that story? No, I think you have to. I've forgotten. You, <laughs> a chair-ridden great-uncle with the sea captaincy gesture of the award of a long service medal presented you with your first diary. Yes. And you loved it because it was like a real book. It had a very hard binding and it would sit on the, on the shelves. Yes, I could write a book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then I suppose to continue that theme, you, you pose the question yourself, for whom does one write a diary? Mm. What, what's the answer to that? Didn't I give the answer? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, for whom do I write? for my grandchildren and their grandchildren or to help me know myself or, yes, 
for whom does one write a diary? For that mysterious being called posterity. Mm. Beautifully, you record in that first diary that um, you record the temperature. It was very hot in Brisbane at the time. How many mangoes you'd eaten? Oh, yes. <laughs> and there are so many kinds of mangoes. My favourite is a mango called a turpentine mango. And I had to sweep up all the leaves under four mango trees. And then I was allowed to eat as many as I like. Over the bath, please. <laughs> <laughs> the Shirley Temple black patent shoes. Yes. Oh, Shirley Temple shoes. And the Shirley Temple walk to go with them. And I learned tap dancing at an early age. I loved it. And I used to teach the littlies to shuffle and tap on a rickety wooden high veranda, yes. <laughs> a shoes that went with a pink floral sunshade with an ivory handle. Oh, <laughs> yes, oh, that was beautiful, yes. I can still feel it, yes. Mm. The, the diary entries you wrote in the early days of your marriage to, to Charles Blackman, yes. you, st you started to get very um, writerly, <laughs> we say that, and you oh. talk about a trip to Manly in the style of Jane Austen. Oh, that's right. I was um, trying to write in style, Dos Passos or Henry Miller or someone. I was trying to write um, in other people's styles to see how it felt, yes. <laughs> it's a, a, a walk through Woolloomooloo in the style of Franz Kafka, last night's party style in the style of Henry Miller, and a quiet family dinner stripped to pieces in the style of Gertrude Stein. <laughs> <laughs> and my mother-in-law found a book. Yes. <laughs> Tell us about that, Tavra. Um... <laughs> What was that, Kerry? I went into <laughs> dinner and said, no one spoke to me being sent to Coventry. And no one spoke. And then she, mother-in-law, hissed at me, snake in the grass. <laughs> and I had to unsnake myself by showing them it was all done in love. Mm. And then you went to Melbourne. <laughs> oh, yes. But it... Um, Yes, it didn't hold much water, so um, we went to Melbourne, Charles and I ran away together, hand-in-hand uh, hand to Melbourne, where there were like conspirators, you know, there were the Boyds and the people at Montsouvat, um, that's Eltham people. Uh, we had kiss, kith, if not kin, we had plenty of kith in uh, Melbourne to join up to. And I think the early days of the 50s, so many people uh, that hold up society since were there in the um, early 50s. I mean, Zelman Khan was there, um, Barry Humphreys, Peter O'Shaughnessy, oh, so many people. Mm. We might bring Jeff Brownrigg in now because, of course, you worked as an artist model um, during this period, didn't you? Oh, well, there's not much you do. You can get a job when you're losing your eyesight. You know, the jobs are few and far between. You have to make your own. So I was an artist model, which I quite enjoyed because the theory is that in the shape of the human body... To every problem there's a solution and all the problems that you meet in painting. So if you put your body in a certain position, it's got to fit. You can't have a bit of an arm sticking out. You can in a painting, but not if you're studying from the model, which is the solved problem. Mm. Now, Dr. Jeff Brownrigg, musicologist. Uh, and very good friend of Barbara's comes to read to Barbara for about 40 years. Yes, <laughs> yes ever since Azra was started, Australian Sound Recording Association. That was about in 1980. Oh, before that, actually. But was we, it? We, we started with. Are you trying to tell me I'm older than I am? Oh, no, 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 no. We started with radio print handicapped 
and uh, sharing ancient radio serials with people um, oh, who, who listened yes. to that ra radio station. Uh, yes. It, it was fun. When a girl marries. When a girl marries. For and all there was the one of them where the daughter went upstairs to get something. She never came down. They changed scriptwriters. That's right. <laughs> yes. yes. And, when and a girl marries or something. And yes. what's more, she's still there. <laughs> yes. In, in 1974, Australia was still exporting a When a Girl Marries for all those who are in love and those who can remember. remember. I wonder if you remember. Uh, to Sierra Leone, which always seemed rather strange to me. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I'm going to hearken back to Barbara's childhood. Uh, I've been through and selected a few things and uh, just a few little snippets to give you a taste uh, so that you can then hunt them out and enjoy the whole essays. Uh, let me start with this one. Lo, as the careful <laughs> housewife runs to catch her feathered creatures that have broke away. Oh, I'm sorry, that's the wrong book. Yes, that's uh, Monsieur Shakespeare, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Most of our time is spent sharing things like that, and uh, we've discovered all sorts of wonders. This is Barbara, uh, and in fact... Uh, from an essay called Houses to Cider, Water to Wine. Houses that... Sorry, I'll start that again. Houses that one has once lived in go on living within one ever after, hiving into honeyed memories. Or like the old woman of Hyde whom we used to write about in schoolmates' autograph books, choosing the pink page on which to write in green ink, who ate some green apples and died. These apples fermented inside the lamented, made cider inside her inside. <laughs> Intoxicating. The memories of houses lived in with glimpses of the self that lived there then like peering into the doll's house with figures sitting at pianos or sleeping in beds. And sure enough, when one comes to revisit the houses wherein one was a child, it is all so much smaller than one remembered, shrunk with the growing years. The second piece is school days. I mean, houses presumably are, are, are things that go way, way back in our memories. Uh, we've got time for one more here, I think. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good, good. <laughs> Girls! Shrilled the headmistress in her very English accent, addressing an assembly of schoolgirls of an impressionable age. The one part of the human body that is truly unbeautiful is the knee. Knees ought not to be exposed to view unnecessarily. This revelation was a dreadful shock to us, with summer coming on and our assurance that, shy as we were about our newly arisen bosoms, we were over the stage of being seen with the sore, scratched, scabbed, sticking plaster knees of childhood. It is indelicate and unladylike to reveal the knees except in watering situations. We assumed we, she referred to the bath and not the beach. We took comfort that flowing beach gowns were in vogue, billowing out in all-day sucker colours. Poets, she went on to prove her point, do not write in praise of the knee. Knees are for humility and prayer. I reflected ruefully upon what can little knees do to praise the kingdom of heaven? Going down on bended knee, suffering from housemaid's knee. But I could not recall a ballad with the declaration, I love thee for thy rosy knee, or a lyric poet, pining and pleading with his mistress for a further sight of her knee. <laughs> Thank you very much. We'll bring Jeff back. And um, 
Barbara, these essays, and, and Quentin Bryce uh, refers to this as well, um, travelling solo on a bicycle built for two, you write of being born a twin and your twin sister dying at just 16 days and she is with you all the time. I think so, a sort of built-in alter ego. And besides, she was the good one, <laughs> you see? And I was the other one. She would have been good at everything and clever and kind and good at everything, so she hounded me. <laughs> she hounded me through the nights and through the days sort of thing, yes. Um, but there's a sadness about that essay too, which rightfully so with the, with the loss of a twin. But your oh, mother... she was the only sibling mm. I ever might have had, yes. Mm. But then you write about your mother referring to you as a nuisance. Oh, yeah, she was a nuisance. Or brat, bratty on a good day. <laughs> I think it was her irony. My mother never scolded her only response to all the things I did to her. What did God make mothers for? <laughs> <laughs> and the loss of your dad, you were only three? Yes. Mm. But before my father died, when he knew he had not long to live, he took my mother and me down to live on the um, um, Kalanda side of Roby Passage with an Aboriginal mob because he'd been doing surveying in south-east Queensland and he really saw that the Abor Aboriginals had a better way of life and so he took my mother and me down to live with a, a mob of Vagular people and so... I think I learned the great secret about our, I call them aborigines, they have the most wonderful sense of humour. <laughs> They're so funny. I mean, for one reason, in, in, in old days, just that I was a white woman called black man, <laughs> that was enough to let me into their humour. And uh, it is wonderful, yes. <laughs> so that had a deep influence on you? That's a... Oh, look, when you're little kids, you don't know if you're white or black or pink or whatever you are. I don't think we were aware that we were different mm. colours at that time. We were just kids. But I think that was good because in another very sad time of my life, after Charles and I split up and I had lost all that had constituted my world up there. What did I do? I found some unlikely person and um, went for a trip up north for six months and lived with uh, what I call aborigines and had a wonderful time. <laughs> it's often said in speaking of children that it's children who dare to ask the questions that no one oh, yes. else will ask. And yes. your beautiful essay do you like it being blind? <laughs> yes. Tell us about that. Oh, well, I've always been interested in education, and uh, that's what I studied at university. Um, and in Perth, I went to an innovative school called Foothills uh, for the day, and I thought I was being shown round, but no, I was um, put in, you know, I was put in the hot seat. So I had a class of 11-year-olds, and um, I thought, well, what I'll do, I'll tell you, there are five ways of spelling poor, <laughs> poor. So you write down five ways of spelling poor, and then anyway, there are P-O-U-R, P-O-O-R, P-A-W, P-O-R-E, and I forgot, oh, P-A-W, P-A-W. And so we did all that and we had great fun. And then they asked questions. We talked about, you know, living in Paris and do the women all wear bi bikinis and high heeled shoes? No, not all. And um, <laughs> uh, all these things. And then I said, there's a little bit of silence up there bubbling over. Come on, Mr. Silence, you want to ask a question? He said, do you like it being blind? 
Oh, I said, I like it so much, even if I am blind. <laughs> so I corrected his grammar and his concepts all at once. <laughs> but you describe blindness as your gift. Yes. Tell us about it. I don't judge a book by a cover. I read it in the inside. Um, I, I, I can't define it or I would have done it, wouldn't I? Mm. But uh, it's not just your pluses that are your gifts. Sometimes your negative that is also a gift because you have to learn how to live with that. And in so doing, you learn other things you never set out to learn. You define it pretty well. These are, these are really wonderful essays. You say, we do not choose our gifts, our gifts choose us. Mm. And you say that blindness is an alternative lifestyle, not necessarily a lesser one. Well, we are eccentrics because everyone else's centre is sight-addicted people. So we're on the periphery, we're eccentrics. And um, we, you know, we see from within and we see to the within, I think. If I can call, I think it might be time for Jeff to leap to the stage. <laughs> and we'll have <laughs> another, another reading. And if you are getting ready with questions too, there will be time for questions, so... I'll, I'll keep oh, it there brief. There will be time. If you've got, a, you've got another way of spelling poor, you'll be able to also demonstrate yes. that. Yeah. Uh, while I find the right place, yeah. the uh, having known Barbara for so long, um, I, I, in fact, uh, we've been mates for many years. Uh, only in the last decade or so has uh, Barbara been forced to listen to things that I've been writing and we talk about her as a sort of literary midwife who, uh, who helps with difficult births. <laughs> and uh, it's been fun, Barbara, hasn't it? Really, oh, uh, yes. Really quite oh, nice. Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, this is from an essay called uh, uh, About Solitude. And uh, I thought it, it, it fitted rather well in here, if I can find it. Goodness gracious, I've lost it already, Barbara. The uh, 198 should be straightforward but it isn't. <laughs> and, and then I'll cut to something that'll take us... Uh, 198? In, yes, that's really strange, isn't it? Why can't I find it? <laughs> I have found it. You know, it. when my first book came out, uh, Certain Chairs, I cried. It only had 99 pages. <laughs> and I cried so hard. And this one's got 216. Which makes up for it. Or 260. Yeah. And some kind friend rang me up from West Australia to tell me there's a spelling mistake on page 216, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this is from an essay called Pleasures of Life, Solitude. My solitude is most complete when I have the house to myself. It is the exquisite pleasure of a self-made still life to sit alone in an immaculately clean room full of cherished things beside a bouquet of flowers with a cup of fresh, hot coffee. Chamber music coming from the speakers, a cat lying somewhere near, enfolded in the moment. There is pleasure in the intimacy with things that shares one's solitude. In the still moment of contemplation, or the colloquy of use, there is time to understand the timelessness of these inanimates. Then the particular shape of a door, the familiarity of a teapot, the intricate enamelling of a bowl, the iconography of a painting, the remembered poem, they become personal. It is pleasant to have a word or two to say to the pot one is cooking with, or the chair one is dragging off to another sitting place. Scientific tests prove that plants are sensitive to the thoughts and caresses of those who attend them. But the indoor inanimates have their mysteries also, living not in earth, 
but in affection. They outgrow the indiscriminate present to inhabit our memories of time and place, to appear without warning in our involuntary dreams. And finally, because we're getting rather close uh, to, uh, to, to bringing to a close this rather pleasant day, it's a very pleasant day, uh, I'm jumping to uh, a celebration. Uh, I, I'd have to learn to read, I think. I'm having trouble with the page numbers here, Barbara. And they're all correct, but <laughs> I can't manage them. While, while you're looking for that, Jeff, okay. just stay there. And, and Barbara, on letter writing, you are a famous letter writer. In fact, you've got I a book about letter pro writing. prolific letter writer. <laughs> mm. And you write that your mother was not truly your friend until you took to paper. Yes. Uh, well, we became deep-seated friends uh, when we took to paper and we wrote three times a fortnight. And um, if we were travelling, I'd tell my mother when we were going to be there. And I think one of the great experience, we got to uh, um, Hotel Napoleon in Paris or something. There was a a letter from my mother waiting for me, and we opened it and said, are you in Paris yet? <laughs> <laughs> Pleasures of life, colon, coffee drinking. It has become natural not to feel myself fully alive to each day until I have a cup of coffee. The slightest smell of its approach enlivens me to uh, reassume possession of those words and loves and memories that are my personal proportion of life. I like to be up and dressed, to have loosely rounded up in my mind the plans and problems that lie about me, and then to drink a coffee. After that, I can begin to think, to work things out. Marketing statistics now forebode such a multiplication in the price of coffee that there is foreshadowed a time when coffee drinking may become as ceremonious as the offering of champagne, as rare as the taking of Queen Mary's tea, or as obsolete as the pinching of snuff. Already coffee has been made ignoble in our time, domesticated into instant dust, drunk hastily at busy moments without steeping the spirit into an elevation of thought and contemplation. Real coffee lures one into the shop where it is ground and shaken into little bags, caresses the waiting appetite all the way home, drenches the kitchen with expectation at its brewing, catches the air upon the stair and wafts through open windows to seize the soul with an aggravation of desire for that lapse of time when one sits alone or in good company to sip slow and sensuous <laughs> the thick, authentic drink dulcet with cream. Coffee. <laughs> <laughs>